Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. And if you do not have a Bible, you're going to want to use a pew Bible. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. So uh, grab a pew Bible and turn to page 488 in your pew Bible. We are looking at the book of Esther this morning. But before we get there, where have we been? We're continuing our journey through the story. I'll give you a quick summary in just a moment, but next week's a huge week for First Christian Church. March 1st is important for at least three reasons. One, our grade school baptism class begins. If you have grade school students, maybe your children, your grandchildren, just people that you know that have not made the decision for baptism, we highly encourage you to think about allowing them to be a part of this class for the five Sundays in March. It starts at 9.30 each Sunday morning, Ivy Courts teaches the class. There's an excellent curriculum that goes with it. You will be blessed. Also next Sunday, March 1st, is Christmas in March. And so I'm wearing a Christmas sweater today to give you an idea what it looks like. Some might call this an ugly Christmas sweater. I like it. I have one of my Sunday school class members tell me that she loves it and she wants me to wear it every Sunday in the winter. I'm not going to do that, but I want you to wear your Christmas gear next week. And 10 lucky second service attendees, you will get a Christmas present from me next Sunday morning. So be in church as we celebrate Christmas in March. And then this is most important for this group. No longer will we have an 11 o'clock service beginning next week. Our second service will begin at 10.30 a.m. Sunday school will go from 9.30 to about 10.15, 10.20, depending on the teacher, and we are going to get started at 10.30. So I need you to spread the word. I need you to be aware. Uh, we don't want anybody to show up at 11 o'clock next week and miss half of the service. And then, of course, our pancake fundraiser breakfast is a week from Saturday, March 7. If you're a student that is selling pancake tickets, raise your hand right now. Okay. If you want to buy tickets, these students would love to sell you their ticket. All the money raised helps fund our summer mission trips. Where have we been in the story up to this point in time? We saw the story uh, very first Sunday of the year of David's great fall. The man after God's own heart became an adulterer, a deceiver, and a murderer, and that's pretty bad. But he truly repented, and so he finished well, finished strong. Solomon, his son, took over, and it was during Solomon's reign that Israel reached its greatness, its peak. But Solomon didn't finish well. He ended poorly. Week three, we looked at how the kingdom divided into two, the reigns of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, north, south, Israel, Judah, a split takes place. Week four, we looked at the messengers that God sends. God sent messengers. We called them prophets. We looked specifically at Elijah the prophet, but all throughout our Bible, Old Testament, there are 16 different prophets that have a written word for God's people. And and this fall, we're going to tackle many of those prophets. From the Sunday after Labor Day until the end of November, we're going to look at the minor prophets. Week after that, we looked at the fall, the fall of the north, Israel to Assyrians in 722, the fall of the south, Judah in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians. Two weeks ago, we looked at Daniel and his exceptional faith, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood firm, no compromise faith. They they refused to give in. And then last week, we looked at the the 106-year return from exile. Three different major groups, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, led God's people back to the promised land. And they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls. But more than just physical building, they renewed their covenant with the Lord their God. And so today is our final message from the Old Testament. 
We've had 19 sermons from the story looking at the Old Testament. And today is our final sermon from the, from the Old Testament. And we're looking at maybe my favorite story. It's the story of Esther. It's familiar to many of you. Some of you may not know the story of Esther. But we're going to tackle it today and see what we can learn. A message entitled, For Such a Time as This. There's five key characters that I want to bring to light this morning. Xerxes, Vashti, Mordecai, Hadassah, and Haman. And I'm going to give you a little bit of information about each one and then kind of a key word. What do we know about Xerxes? Well, this is King Xerxes, and he was king of Persia from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And that's right smack dab in the middle of that 106-year returning from exile for God's people. So when Xerxes is reigning, most of God's people had not returned home from exile yet. Xerxes had an incredible, incredible span of a kingdom. 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Think about that just for a moment. From India to Ethiopia. Xerxes' kingdom makes Solomon's kingdom seem like chump change. Just very small when you consider how great Xerxes' kingdom is. And if there is a word that you need to attach to Xerxes, it's the word authority. He's the most powerful man in the world, and his word stands. When he says something, people react immediately or they die. There is no one in the history of the world up to this point in time that is more powerful than this King Xerxes. Well, who was Vashti? Vashti was his queen, and she's only going to appear in chapter 1. She's not staying around for long, but we know that she was beautiful. We know that, that she uh, was the type of a person that Xerxes liked to parade in front of others. And, and, and she's the queen, and the word that I would attach to her is the word deposed. She's not staying around for long because of her insubordination. What about Mordecai the Jew? Well, we don't know a lot about what he does for the living, but we know that he was pretty important. We know that when he took a stand, people paid attention. When he said something's not right, people paid attention. And the key word that's attached to him is the word faithful. In fact, for a lot of us today, the number one takeaway that you're going to be able to grab from this message today is, will you be faithful like Mordecai was faithful? Will you have a faith that is rock-solid Faithful, like Mordecai the Jew. Hadassah, I love that name, Hadassah. And, and who is Hadassah? It's actually Esther. Esther is, is pretending that she is not Jewish. She's living kind of a secret life. We're going to know her as Esther, but her given name is Hadassah. And, and, and the key word that I want to attach to her is the word opportunity. Aaron alluded to it. She's an orphan. Mom and dad are not around. And Mordecai, some say he was her uncle, others say he was a cousin, doesn't really matter. But he adopts her into his family, and she is going to have an incredible opportunity. And then the final character is the, the evil one in our account. It's the guy named Haman, very influential, number two in the kingdom. Does anybody know the heritage of Haman? Have you heard this account? Some of you that are studying the story with video probably do. There is an account that goes way back to when Saul, the very first king of Israel, is reigning. And God said to completely destroy the Amalekites. And Saul went in and he kind of followed directions. They definitely killed many of the Amalekites. 
But he spared Agag, king of the Amalekites, and he didn't want to destroy the good cattle and the good lambs. And They tried to plunder some of the lamb. And Samuel comes up, and Saul said, I did exactly what you said. And Samuel says, then why do I hear the cows? Why do I hear the sheep? Agag, uh, part of his lineage is Haman. Haman is a direct descendant to King Agag of the Amalekites. And so because of that, Haman has a deep-rooted hatred for not just Mordecai, but for all Jewish people. Absolutely hates him. Because he remembers back to, he doesn't remember, he wasn't alive, but he's heard stories of the time that his people were destroyed by Saul and the Israelites. So with that, there's three big teaching points that I want to give you, and I'm going to share a lot along the way, and I hope that you will be able to fill in the blanks when you get home today. Number one is this, when apparently unrelated events unfold, you need to understand that God may well be actively involved. Think about that for just a moment. When seemingly unrelated events unfold, it could be that God is very actively involved. I think sometimes when when we don't see God acting in, in a way that we want him to, during a timing that we want him to, in a manner that we wish, we just assume, well, he's just not interested. He, he's just not concerned with us today. Do you realize that in the book of Esther, the name God is not used one time? Not one time will you find the name God in the book of Esther. But his handprints are all over the book. His working is just so obvious. So I'm going to tell you four seemingly random events that help set up this story and help us understand what's unfolding. And number one is this, event number one, King Xerxes makes the decision to get rid of Queen Vashti because of her insubordination and almost immediately regrets it. How would you like to be a part of a 180-day party? 180 days. That's what's unfolding here. That's almost six months. And it's party in Persia. I mean, they are in high spirits. And Xerxes is having the time of his life. He's the most powerful man in the world. And he's having this party that just won't die. And he comes up, probably he's drunk at this time. And he comes up with this idea that he is going to ask his beautiful queen Vashti to parade her beauty in front of him and all of his drunken buddies. Now, if, if we tried to do that today, what would our wives say? They'd say, go fly a kite, right? And Vashti, in her own kind of way, says, go fly a kite. But this isn't 2015. This is probably 480, 475 B.C. And when the king says it, you better do it. But Vashti says, I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to parade myself in front of anybody. And so because of that, she is queen no more. She is deposed, she's moving on down the road, and Xerxes decides, I'm going to have to find another queen. I can't live all by myself. Because of this seemingly random event, event number two is that the absence of a queen opens up an opportunity for someone else. And so they search the kingdom far and wide. What are the most beautiful young women that we can find? And lo and behold, Hadassah, Esther, is one of many that are selected. And they go through a a very thorough process, and they're putting special lotions and oils, and they're probably eating special food, and they're being trained in how to act. But it's, it's Esther's sheer beauty that causes Xerxes to do the unthinkable. A random girl no one had even heard of, a girl that is 
pretending to be someone that she is not, is selected to be the next queen of Persia. Well, event number three, the faithful Mordecai saves the life of Xerxes. And again, you can read about this in chapter two of Esther. We won't read the account for time's sake this morning, but there was an assassination plot. People want to kill King Xerxes. Mordecai overhears the plot, and he's a good citizen. And so he makes sure that the king finds out what's happening. People know that it's Mordecai that's come to his rescue. And unfortunately, he receives no reward whatsoever. Let's say that Mark Witzke, or let's say that Bob Shaw, or let's say that Marla Taylor uncovered a plot to kill the president, or to kill the governor, or to kill somebody, and it turns out to be true, and they find the would-be assassins. Do you think you would hear the name Mark Witzke, or Bob Shaw, or Marla Taylor? You'd hear it so much, you wouldn't want to hear it anymore. There would be parades, there would be festivals, there would be proclamations of honor. Nothing takes place for Haman here. And you read that in Esther chapter 2 and you say, well, that's a ripoff. That's not fair. That's not right. Why did one of God's good guys get cheated out of the honor that he is due? It's because God's working. It's because God's timing is better than our timing. You ever found yourself in a situation like that where you think, I should be getting recognition. I should be getting honor. I should be getting a promotion. I should be getting something and nothing happens and nobody notices. Could it be that it's just not God's timing? Could it be that God has a better plan waiting for you? Event number four, and this is really the, the most important event of this narrative today. Xerxes' number two man, the evil Haman, devises a twisted plan to completely destroy the Jews. He wants them wiped out. He is tired of them. He doesn't like them. He has history. I think it's fair to say he's a racist. Hatred toward the Jews. And he devises a plan that is going to completely destroy the Jews. And so I've shared with you four seemingly random events and yet God is actively involved in bringing all the characters into view. You've got Xerxes, and you've got Vashti, and Mordecai, and Hadassah, Esther, and Haman. Number two, when living through a devastating crisis, understand that God may be at work through human tensions. See, Haman's plot is going to annihilate the Jews all he needs to do is convince Xerxes that this plan will benefit him. So he's, he's very deceptive. He says, King, and you can find this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. He says, King, there is a people, and they are a people of no respect. They are a people that don't bow down when I walk by or when you walk by. They are a people that worship others instead of you. And so I propose that we take these people and we completely allow for the annihilation of these people. And they will be a threat to you no more. Someone that's a king, someone that's in power, nothing's going to really push their button more than the uncovering of a threat to their reign. And so Xerxes does the unthinkable. He signs an irrevocable decree to destroy the Jews. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3, we see this irrevocable decree. 
Two weeks ago when we studied Daniel, we learned that the kings of Persia, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians were such that when the king made a decree, what did that mean? It could never be wiped out again. So, so the king, let's just say he, he's drunk, and in his drunken stupor, he makes a crazy decree. It's the law, and it's the law forever. Or you're in a bad mood. Your favorite sports team has lost the game, and you're upset, and you just you make a decree, and you want to do it over the next day. Can't do it. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once a law is put into effect, it can never be revoked. And so God's people will die. They've got months left. So because of this awful decree, Mordecai decides he must act. Mordecai the Jew learns of the evil plan, and he responds differently than I would respond. Differently than maybe you would respond. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he hangs out for anyone and everyone to see him in the most public of places. He wants everyone to see him with torn clothes. He wants everyone to see him with ashes, which is a sign of sorrow. It's a sign of devastation. He wants everyone to see sackcloth on his body. Hoping, praying, pleading that anyone will notice. Anyone will be aware of what is happening. Well, Esther finds out what's happening. And she says, dude, get it together. Uncle Mordecai, what are you doing? Let's get with it. This is not exactly what we want to have play out. Mordecai says, my dear niece, my dear cousin, whatever it may be, you don't understand what's unfolding here. You don't understand the devastation that's going to take place. Remember when you were just a common, average teenage girl? Is it possible that God has placed you where you are today? I love this. For such a time as this, will you act? I, I want to read that scripture for you today. Let's put that scripture up on the screen. Mordecai sent back this answer. Do, you, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your families will perish. But who knows that you have come to a royal position for such a a time as this. See, e Esther, she's got quite a situation. What happened to the last queen, Queen Vashti? What happened to her? She didn't want to put on her swimsuit and walk in front of a bunch of guys, and she's not the queen anymore. Now Mordecai's saying, you have to go and you have to speak to the king about a decree that he has made and tell him that he's made a mistake? I mean, what's going to happen to her? She, she's went... The ultimate fairy tale lifestyle. From nobody to queen. And now Mordecai's asking her to risk it all. But what's awesome is Esther decides that she must act. And she will act. And verse 16 of chapter 4 says, Even if I'm going to lose my life, I'm going to lose my life. But I will take a stand. And so she does it in a very unique kind of way. She says, king, I want to throw you a feast. And so he says, great, well, let's have a feast. And she throws a feast for him in, in able to help tell the story of what exactly is going to unfold. But before the feast takes place, the king can't sleep at night. 
The king has insomnia. What do you do when you can't sleep at night? Do you get up and maybe turn on and watch infomercials? Or do you try to count sheep? Or do you get up and go for a walk? Or, well, here's what the king did. And we might want to think about doing this. He called for a couple of his minions to come in, and he said, read for me the history of my reign. And so they open up the history of his reign, and just, they just start telling him all that's happened. And he's reading this, and you built this, and you killed these people, and it comes to the account of the assassination plot. And he says, oh yeah, I remember that. Those guys wanted to kill me. And he says, what happened? What was that guy's name? Oh, yeah, Mordecai the Jew. What, what happened to Mordecai? What honor did he receive? And they're thumbing and thumbing and trying to find it, and they realize that nothing happened to Mordecai the Jew. He didn't get a parade. He didn't get a bonus. He didn't get anything. And so Xerxes, he's ready to go to sleep now, but he's resolved that something must be done to honor this man who saved my kingdom. Is that just a coincidence? Is that just a lucky break for Mordecai? Or could it be that God is very actively involved? Number three, big idea number three. When trying to deduce God's sovereignty, we have to understand that God's timing is always better than our timing. And I could share 15 illustrations from my life when I was doing the whole, God, what are you doing? God, why aren't you acting like I want you to act? God, why isn't that ministry opening up? God, why isn't this ministry flourishing? God, why are things going so slow? We want to move, we want to act, we want to go. And I would tell you that in every situation, the lesson I learned was that God's timing is always better than Greg's timing. And I know some of us here today, we come here with a little bit of a broken heart, maybe a little bit of a broken spirit, because we see pain and suffering in our life or in people that we love their life, or, or we see chaos in the workplace, or we see chaos at home, we see chaos in our context, and we've been saying, God, can you get it together? Can you get going? We start playing that game of what's it going to take for me to change God's action? You know, God, I'll stop doing this or God, I'll start doing this as long as I can get this. And maybe what we need to do is realize that God's timing is better than our timing. And there's a reason that what we want to unfold hasn't happened. Can you imagine how tragic the situations would have been in this account? If Mordecai would have got a simple proclamation years earlier. But God's timing is always better than our timing. Let me wrap this story up for you today. Haman's hatred for Mordecai and the Jews moved him to do something just ludicrous. To build gallows that were 75 feet tall. Now you're saying, how did they build gallows 75 feet tall during the Persian Empire? I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know. And I don't know if 75 feet is literally 75 feet or if that's an exaggeration. I don't think it really matters. But here's what I do know. As people walked through the city, they saw this unusually large set of gallows being erected at Haman's house. And in chapter 5 of the book of Esther, we learn that Haman did this for one reason and one reason only. He was going to kill Mordecai the Jew. 
He's so confident that he's the man. He's so confident that his plan is the right plan that he doesn't want to have to waste time when the king finally says, down with Mordecai, he wants to have the gallows ready to go. Does that sound a little arrogant? Yeah. Does that sound a little cocky? Yeah. But that's the kind of guy that he is. Well, the king, the next morning after his night where he couldn't sleep, he calls his number two man, Haman, into the palace and he says, what should be done for someone that has really moved my heart? For someone that I'm really excited about and I'm really appreciative of. And Haman, of course, thinks that he's talking about who? Himself. He says, well, I've got a great idea. Put a robe on the guy, put a ring on the guy, let let him sit on the king's horse And then have one of your nobles, one of your most important people, parade him through the city saying, this is what happens to someone who the king is very pleased with. Haman's thinking, this is going to be great. And then he about has a heart attack when Xerxes says, that's our great plan, Haman. Go get Mordecai the Jew. He's the guy that we're going to honor. And so instead of the great honor for himself, it is Haman that is, that is participating in the parade and, and the procession giving Mordecai all the honor that he is due. Well, following that, Haman remembers, you know, I got an invitation to a banquet. It's the second banquet that Esther is throwing for Xerxes. But for the second banquet, she says, King, I just don't want you there. I want your number two man there as well. Get Haman, bring him there as well. And it's in the middle of that banquet that Esther spills the beans. See, the king was so enthralled with Esther He said, I'm going to give you anything you want, even up to half of my kingdom. I love you so much. Your beauty is so great. You're just breathtaking. What do you want? And she says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about what's happening to my people. There's this guy that's hatched this evil plot. He's sitting right there. He has attempted to get you to annihilate my people. And the more she tells, the angrier the king gets, the more afraid Haman gets. And finally, the king can stand it no more. And so he gets up in a huff and he leaves the room. And and Haman goes from destroyer to desperate. And he realizes that his reign as number two man is probably coming to an end. So he does what any of us guys would do. He gets down at the feet of Esther and he's pawing at her on the couch saying, please change your mind. Please talk to the king on my behalf. Please give me a second chance. And the king walks back in and the text says that you're trying to molest my wife. And so Xerxes decides right then and right there, Haman is no more. And he says, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to kill him today. At that point, one of the unsung heroes of the account Harbona, the eunuch, speaks up and says, well, king, it just so happens there there is a, a gallows 75 feet high that's been erected at Haman's house. And so Haman goes from second most powerful man in the kingdom to executed failure, hung at his own house on the gallows that he erected for Mordecai, the Jew. Two more kind of housekeeping notes that you need to be aware of. Xerxes issues a new decree 
one that gives the Jews freedom and security to worship. And, and just kind of bringing it to 2015, on March 4th and 5th, there is a festival that will be celebrated all throughout the world by the Jewish people. Anybody know what it's called? Purim. And it is a celebration of the events of the book of Esther. A week and a half, Purim will take place. And then finally, Mordecai goes from sackcloth and ashes to second in command in Persia. Only Xerxes is greater than him. And you can read about that in the last chapter of the book of Esther. That's a lot of history, isn't it? That's a long story, isn't it? Let me tell you what I think is most important about the book of Esther. And it's really the bottom line for this today. Understand that God is sovereign over all human events. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And guys, it's hard to grab a hold of that when we're living our lives and life's not unfolding like we want it to. It's hard to live that when we live distracted lives. Remember how Solomon had the divided heart? I think it's hard when we've got a divided heart to really embrace the sovereignty of God. But I think that's what the book of Esther is trying to teach us. That God is sovereign. God is alive. God is moving even when we don't understand it. So real quickly, three life lessons that I want to leave you with today. Number one is this. Understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be faithful like Mordecai the Jew, no matter the circumstance or situation. What's the future hold for Christians? I I don't know. What's the landscape going to look like five years from now? I don't know. I know that this week, I believe, in Egypt... 21 Coptic Christians were murdered for being Christians. That's a story that unfolds week after week after week around the world. So what's that mean for us? I don't know, but I know that we're called to be faithful like Mordecai the Jew. Number two, make sure you're living your life with your eyes wide open and you're looking for Esther-like opportunities to make a difference. See, Esther's the hero for talking to the king, but if Mordecai didn't do the whole ash and sackcloth thing, would she have acted? I don't know. If Mordecai wouldn't have said to her, maybe you're here for such a time as this, would she have just figured it out on her own? I I don't know. So make sure as a person of faith, your eyes are wide open and you're looking for opportunities for God to use you. And then finally, never forget God is in control. Sometimes when we least expect it. Sometimes when we think his presence is nowhere to be found, he's very much in control. Next week, we move on to the New Testament. Christmas in March, the story of God with us. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the lessons of this incredible book of the Bible. It's a book where your name is not mentioned once, but your handiwork is all over it. And so help us to live our lives as people of faith that love you, that will be faithful, and that will never be afraid to take a stand in your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.